0: It's good to see you guys. We, um, we're in a series called A Return to Wonder. This summer, as a church, we're journeying through the entire book of Colossians together and one of the things that we're doing, we're breaking it up into a few parts, and so this first part that we've entitled A Return to Wonder, we're trying to jump into the first chapter of Colossians together, Colossians 1, and, and we're not going to get into all the details of this letter that Paul writes to this church uh, in Colossae. Um, if you, if you want to catch up on the series, you can watch the po- video podcast or listen to the audio podcast and catch up that way, but tonight, We are going to engage a portion of Colossians that is not only one of my favorite parts of Colossians, it's one of my favorite parts of Scripture. Um, the entirety of the Bible. Ryan read it. It's this ancient hymn. Most scholars believe that it was one of the first songs that the Christian church sung together. Um, If it wasn't a song, then with certainty, scholars say, it was at the very least a poem that was read uh, regularly together in church services much like this. But as we get into it, I want to begin with a question. And I want to give you just a moment to think about this question. Just, it, it's, it's for you to think about internally. I'm not going to ask for responses. But, but I want to ask you this question. Have you ever been in a place in your life where stuff feels like it is spinning so far out of control? Where it feels like you're losing grip, like you are losing your bearings in such a way That you have to almost remind yourself, okay, Jay, just hold it together. Have you ever said that to yourself? Just hold it together. You feel like everything's coming undone, like life is breaking at the seams and all the stuff that you have built up, all the stuff of your life that you have worked so hard and manufactured, the life you have crafted seems like it's just coming undone, like it's breaking and falling apart and it feels like all you've got left is to hold on to something and say, just hold it together. My guess is that most of us have been in this place. My guess is that most of us have been in this place numerous times. Sometimes it's because of circumstances that we caused, consequences of decisions we made. Sometimes it's external situations. It's stuff beyond our control. Things that come knocking on the door of life that we did not expect. And all of a sudden, everything begins to fall apart. And all we've got left is this desperate reminder to ourselves. Just hold it together. I've been in this place many times as I'm sure many of you have. Um, I, I told a story last Sunday about a time when I was in this place. In my early 20s, I, I quit my job and dropped out of school and broke up with a girl that I was seriously dating and totaled my car all in the span of five days, one December. And I felt like in those moments, just, just hold it together. About a year ago, a little over a year ago, uh, my father, who I had no relationship with, but also in some strange ways had an immense weight and influence in my life, uh, passed away suddenly. Some of you know that story. Now I remember. I'll talk more about that toward the end. But I remember getting this phone call from my mom. And she was somber and quiet, and I knew something was wrong, and it was a Wednesday in April, and uh, 6.30 a.m., and I thought, what is the deal? And I asked her, what's wrong? And she says quietly, Jay, your dad died last night. And I remember just losing it and having to remind myself, man, just hold it together. We've been there. We've all been there. Paul writes this letter to the Colossian church. And toward the beginning of the letter, he recites this hymn, this ancient song, this poem that the church would have sung and read together. But what you need to know about where Paul is writing from is important. This is important. Paul is writing this letter to the Colossian church. Most scholars believe that he's writing it from a Roman prison cell. And that he is writing this letter toward the end of his life. Paul is writing this letter to the Colossian church chained up, shackled up in a Roman prison. Knowing that execution is right around the corner. Knowing that his life in this life is slowly, not, not slowly, quickly coming to an end. And from that place he writes this letter. If ever there was a person who should have been reminding him or herself, oh man, life is coming apart. It's falling apart. I, I am coming undone. Life is busting out at the seams. Everything is crumbling and falling apart. Just hold it together to write one more word. Just hold it together and finish this letter. If ever there was a situation like that, It is Paul's situation. Life is falling apart. And he is clinging. He is clinging on to just hold it together. And in the beginning of this letter, as he writes, awaiting execution in a Roman prison, he recites these words. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 18, this ancient song of the Christian church. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through Him and for Him. He, Jesus, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. I wonder, I wonder, if as Paul is writing these words, reciting this hymn to these people in the Colossian church that he is trying to encourage and teach and challenge, I wonder if he is also writing to remind himself, shackled in chains awaiting death. The scholar Adolf Deisman says this about the passage, and I love it. Colossians 1, 15-18 soars high above the dusty street of everyday prose, which almost in the language of the seer of another world bears witness to the wonderful secret of that world. This song, this hymn of the church that Paul recites, it reads like it's something else, doesn't it? It actually, if you were to read all of Colossians kind of in its full context, which I would encourage all of us to do during this series, you will find that this passage, this portion of the first chapter of Colossians, it stands out in its literary form and in its in its kind of feel and vibe, it stands out. And that's what Dysman says, that this, these words, this hymn, this poem, this ancient song of the church, it's like almost like this divine thing. And I wonder if that's what Paul needed as his life is coming to an end. I wonder if this song is his plea to himself. Just hold it together. You're going to be all right. Because sometimes when our lives are falling apart, logic and reason and step-by-step instructions just don't do. Sometimes... We need a song. Sometimes you need poetry. You need truth spoken to you in ways that math and science fail to capture. And and there are a number of things that Paul says in in quoting this hymn that I believe hold such deep and meaningful truth for us, especially those of us who know what it's like to desperately cry out, just hold it together. The song begins by proclaiming that Jesus the Son is the image of the invisible God. Paul does a couple of things here. He admits first that God is invisible. This is an admit, an admittance or an admission that we fail to make so often, right? Because it almost feels like not Christian to say, I've never seen God, right? Like that statement feels like, well, it's true, but I'm not going to say that. It's like weird. It makes me feel like I'm not spiritual. Well, I'm going to say it for you. I have never seen God, ever. When I was a child, I thought God was an old white guy with a really important beard and like a thunderbolt rod for a staff. Because that's what I saw on the flannel graph at Sunday school, right? It's like, oh, that must be God. And I'm pretty sure my my Sunday school teacher picked up like some like Greek mythology flannel graph stuff and just took Zeus It was like, oh, let's just use him. That's God, right? that's, That's what I thought. But we're all older and sophisticated now, right? We're educated. So what we know is that that's not what God looks like. Or maybe he does, but we can't know for sure. We don't know. We haven't seen him. And if you're sitting in your seat right now, and you're like, well, I have, talk to me afterwards. I'll love, i would love, love, love to talk to you. What does he look like, right? How come you're not dead? Stuff like that. <laughs> right? But Paul admits that God is invisible, that he is unseen, and yet Jesus The Son of God who was fully man and yet fully God reveals to us Jesus is the seen, the visible form, shape, embodiment, fullness of the unseen, invisible God. In, In our chaos, when we are asking ourselves to just hold it together... When life seems like it's falling apart, is that not the sort of God we need? It is for me. I need a God that I can trust. Okay, he gets it. You know what I mean? Like he knows. He When I feel pain, I need a God that do, doesn't like conceptually understand pain from a distant throne in the ethereal something. I need a God who understands pain because he like felt pain in our God Jesus says yes I know pain thorns in my brow stakes in my wrists and my feet whipped and lashed all over my back cross suffocation blood I know pain When I am dealing with loss, I need a God who says I know the hurt and the fear of loss. I need a God who, like Jesus, can step in and say there was this time that my friend Lazarus died. And I knew I was going to bring him back to life. But as his family and friends were weeping, I wept with them. I knew that the grave was not the end of the story, but I understand the pain of loss. I need a God who embodied himself. I need a God who was not simply invisible, but became visible. Not because he needed to or had to, but because he chose to not simply so that he might live, die, and come back to life, although that is the crux of what we believe, but because he loves us enough to come and be closer to us than he ever needed to be. When I'm crying out, man, just hold it together, I need a God that says, I know what that tension's like. I get it. The image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, the writer of Hebrews says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification from sins, death, resurrection, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I need that God. The God who knows pain, who knows hurt, who liked fish. You notice Jesus always does stuff with fish. Hey, go catch more fish. Cast your net. Catch that fish. Bring that fish. There's a coin in its mouth. He dies, comes back to life. It's like, hey, I just resurrected. I'm hungry. Got any fish? Right? He's like (laughs) really into fish. I need that God who likes food. The God who partied with sinners and with saints. The God who came and said, no more wine? Let's make wine. Right? You're all like, oh, can I laugh at that? It's like, no, this is church. That's so wrong. You know Jesus did that, right? It's like in the Bible. He actually was like, no more wine. Let's make wine. I need that God. The image of the invisible God. Who knows me. Who gets me. Who's with me. The song, the hymn continues. Paul writes about Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the God who gets us, who who fleshed out this ethereal idea, concept of God in the human form, in the body and blood and bones of Jesus. And then he continues, For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. The theologian David Garland, he writes this. He says that Christ is more than the force that preserves the orderly arrangement of the cosmos. He is its rationale, its rhyme and reason. What what Garland is getting at is this truth that Jesus does not sit outside of our reality, just holding our reality together so that it's orderly and leaving us to function and fend for ourselves on the inside alone. He is saying, and this is true of the Scriptures, the Scriptures tell us this, that Jesus is actually in our story. That Jesus is not upholding the order of the cosmos. He is the very rationale, the rhyme and the reason of the cosmos. Jesus is not on the outskirts of our universe watching as we orbit around ourselves. Jesus is the sun around whom our lives orbit. Jesus is not on the periphery. Jesus is the center. And for as long as we try to live life in such a way that the center of it all is anything or anyone but Jesus, we will be living life in such a way where our orbit, the story of our life, spinning round and round, will be dysfunctional and broken. When Jesus becomes the center, we get into the proper posture. Our lives begin to move in the appropriate, God driven, kingdom minded direction that He always intended for us. Because in Jesus, all things hold together. And so the question has to be asked of us in reality what is it that holds me together? Because here's the deal. We will never know what truly is holding our me, myself, personally, what is holding me together until something breaks. Uh, There's this writer named Dave Eggers who wrote a book called What is the What? It's not Christian. It's just this novel about uh, an African uh, kid named Valentino. Amazing story. But he tells this story from the first-person perspective of this uh, kid, Valentino, as Valentino watches his father being beaten to death by the army. And this is how Eggers describes that scene, as seen through the eyes of this child, Valentino. At that moment, something in me snapped. I felt it. I could not be mistaken. It was as if there were a handful of taut strings inside me, holding me straight, holding together my brain and heart and legs. And at that moment, one of these strings, thin and delicate, snapped. I read this line from this book on a flight home from a place a couple of months ago. And the moment I read this line, I stopped, pulled out my highlighter and just highlighted it and wrote all over my book. Because these words gave words to something I had felt a year before. I told you that my father had passed away in April of 2012. And when my mother called me to tell me that this man who was my father that I did not know died, I was overwhelmed with emotions in a way that was so unexpected. And I felt, as, as Eggers writes in the book, I felt this way as though a string had snapped and everything that was holding me together just crumbled and it was sudden i was like completely a man undone i just lost it it just all spilled out my emotions my anxieties my insecurities my hurt my pain my regrets it all just spilled out on my bed as i'm weeping uncontrollably and my wife is holding me and i am telling i remember telling jenny like i don't know why i'm crying I was like this man undone, and I remember sitting in my bed trying to gain some composure and telling myself, just hold it together. Just hold it together. And what I realized in that moment was that for 30 plus years of my life, the thing that was holding me together on the inside was not God. It was not Jesus. The thing holding me together was my own idea and my own manufactured image of my self-worth. Questions about why my father would leave my family long before I can remember. My worth as a son. My worth as a man. Those were the things that were holding me together. And when the man who in my mind held all the cards died, everything fell apart. And so the question for us is what is holding us together? Because if a string snapped, would you come completely undone? The song continues, and it ends with the idea of supremacy. Paul says at the end of this hymn as he quotes it, he says all of this stuff happens so that in in everything, he, Jesus, might have the supremacy. In everything. And we have to remember how the song goes before that in everything part. What does Paul say as he quotes this song? Whether things in heaven and on earth visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Those words, those last four specifically, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, you have to understand in this time, during this era of human history, those words were weighty words. They were loaded words. These were people living under the oppressive rule of a tyrant empire called Rome. And Rome ruled with uh, military might and with coercion and with the sword and spear. Rome ruled with utmost power and authority. They had a throne upon which Caesar, the king of Rome, sat, where he was worshipped as a god. And so these are people, when they hear these words, these are real words to them. I know what power looks like. I know what authority looks like. What rule looks like. I've seen the throne of the empire. And Paul says, as he quotes this hymn, in the end, none of those things hold it together. Jesus holds it together. And so whatever oppression you are living under, whether it is the the oppressive rule of your past and your guilt and your shame, the throne of your worldly pleasures and addictions, the 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 false authority that you think your past or brokenness has in your life whatever oppression whatever throne whatever rule whatever authority seems to have a grip on you whatever it is that is holding you together holding you hostage on the inside It has no weight and no bearing and no power in the face of Jesus, the Son, the image of the invisible God who gets where you are. He understands, and his invitation is to say, let me hold it together. And what does that take? The song ends with the idea of supremacy. In the Greek, the word for supremacy is protuo. Protuo simply means first. It simply means first. You see, Jesus' desire in the midst of all of this is that he would be first. Jesus wants to be first. Jesus doesn't want to be a weekend thing that you do. He does not want to be a part of your checklist Jesus does not want to meet you only during your morning devotional, although he wants to meet you there. Jesus wants to be first, to reign and rule supreme in every area of your life and mine. In your relationships, Jesus wants to be first. In your career, in your academics, in your pursuits of whatever success status, whatever it might be, your pursuit of a spouse, Jesus wants to be first. He wants to rule and reign supreme. Now, that's, that's frightening, right? That's scary. Because the first step in allowing Jesus to be first, the first step in letting Jesus be supreme, have supremacy in our lives, is to admit that we are not capable on our own, that I am incapable, that I am too weak to write the story for my life that God intends to write, that I do not have enough strength to hold the pen. And yet there's a beauty in admitting that weakness, in inability. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10, But he, Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses." The writer Michael Spencer says the human experience of weakness is God's blueprint for calling attention to the supremacy of his son. When we admit our weakness and our inability to make it on our own, that is when we begin to allow Jesus to take supremacy in our lives and that is when the Jesus who knows us and understands us, the image of the invisible God begins to take a hold of our lives and and all of that stuff that felt like it was falling apart, it it becomes uh, to be held together in his loving embrace. Jesus holds it together if we would relinquish control and let him have supremacy in our lives. Yesterday, I uh, drove my wife to the airport. Um, she, uh, My wife is... Um, We're we're just in a really fun but crazy season of life. She's got a career change on the horizon, and uh, a part of that career change is an opportunity to uh, work with this organization. It's an amazing organization, but one of the requirements is that you have to do a five-week intensive training in Los Angeles. Um, And so she left yesterday. I drove her from here, from San Jose. We drove down to L.A., and she's just going to be in L.A. for the next five weeks. So if anyone wants to make dinner and bring it over, (laughs) text me, or I'll just eat top ramen for the next five weeks. It's up to you, whatever you want, you know, whatever you want me to do. Um, (laughs) That may be a good or bad thing, I don't know, but um, I drove her down to LA, and, and guys, you know how we are with this kind of stuff, right? It's like, We've known for months that Jenny was going to do this thing, and she would always get emotional, like, oh, it's so long. How, how are we going to do that? i always be like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. it's fine. it's fine. So don't worry about it. We'll see each other on weekends. It's going to be great. We'll Skype, you know, whatever, FaceTime. it would be fine. And she's always like, oh, I'm so sad. I don't want to do this. I don't want to leave you for that long. I'm like, ah, it's fine. We, I'm, like, totally okay until the entire drive down. And she drives me to LAX so that I can hop on a flight home, and right when we pull up and I see the LAX sign, it, like, hits me like a wall of bricks. I'm like, oh, my gosh, we're leaving. Right? I start losing it. And so I hop out of the car, and we have this, like, really emotional goodbye. Like, no, right? It's, like, real bummer. And so I'm already pretty emotional, and I get... Um, into the airport, and I check in and get to my terminal, gate 22 at LAX, and I'm already feeling so alone, and I'm already feeling kind of weird, I'm going to go back home to this empty house for five weeks, and then I know that today, this was just yesterday, less than 24 hours ago, I know today's Father's Day, and Father's Day is always weird for me, so I'm thinking about my dad, and all my regrets, and all this stuff, I'm already feeling like a man undone, and then, I kid you not, LAX, Terminal 22, flight 843 on Southwest to San Jose, 30, uh, about 30 Boy Scouts and their troop leaders and all of their dads come marching into Terminal 22. <laughs> they had been on some trip to LA and now some father son trip and now they're flying home and I, they're all sitting in front of me like, I love you dad. I'm like, oh, right? I'm just losing it. We're laughing about it now, but I kid you not, like 24 hours ago, I was losing it in Terminal 22 of LAX. Just losing it. And so I'm feeling like defeated and broken and like a man undone. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm just going to hop on that flight, sit in the back corner. I'm just going to find my own row with no one around me and um, just work. And I get on the plane. There's all these people in front of me. And for some reason, I look to my left, and there's a young man sitting in the aisle seat and another man sitting in the window seat and then an empty seat in the middle. And there were a bunch of seats like that with empty seats in the middle. And I don't know where this came from, but out of my mouth, almost as though I did not control it myself, I hear myself saying, is anyone sitting there? And the moment I said it, I was like, why did I do that? Right? Because now I'm committed if he says no one's sitting there, like, I'm not going to be like, oh, it sucks. And they like keep walking. I mean, that's rude, right? So now I'm committed. If the seat's open, I have to sit there. And the guy goes, yeah, it's totally open. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I sit down. And the moment I sit down, this guy, the moment I sit down, this guy turns to me, the guy in the aisle, he turns to me, young guy, probably in his late 20s, early 30s. And he says, hey, i my name's Shelby. And he introduces himself. And I introduce myself. And we begin talking. And it turns out that Shelby is on his way to Seattle. And he is a part of a church plant called Mosaic in Seattle. And then we keep talking and he asks me about my testimony. Don't freak out yet, it gets way crazier. (laughs) Uh, He asks me about my testimony. I tell it to him just very vaguely and he gives me his testimony and it encourages me and challenges me and... I'm like, what is happening? This is amazing. And then toward the end of the flight, um, Shelby looks at me and he says, hey, um, I don't want you to think I'm weird. I'm not like overly spiritual or super prophetic or anything like that, but I really don't want to say this to you because I don't want to look weird, but I just feel led to say this to you. And so I'm like a little nervous at this point. And he says, I never do this. I fly around the country a lot and I never do this, but... When I was in the terminal, I prayed randomly, God, let me have a significant conversation on this flight. And then, Jay, when I saw you walk up, right before you asked me if this seat was open, I had this weird vision of you. And just hang with me, you guys. I'm not like, this is not a normal thing for me, so I'm still wrestling with this because it's like 24 hours ago. And he says, yeah, I just had this weird vision of you. Like, your name was like Jason or Jay. And this is what really got to me. Because um, this is before I told him my story about my family and all of that. He said, and I don't know if this is anything, but I saw this, I saw this vision of you. I thought, and it, sat, it felt like your name was Jason or Jay. And, um, and then I saw a picture, like a picture frame picture of you and a woman that I thought was your mother, and there was a spot for your father, but there was no one there. I don't know what that means. And I'm on flight 843 southwest to San Jose, <laughs> just losing it. And, uh, and then I tell him my story. I'm like, dude, tomorrow's Father's Day. freaking Boy Scouts are driving me nuts. <laughs> I start losing it, and he's uh, emotional. And um, and then he tells me, dude, that's, a, that's amazing. Praise God. Um, and then he says to me, I want to pray for you, but before I pray for you, I just feel like God wants to say this to you. Um, he loves you. Your father loved you. And God has got you. And he had no idea what I was teaching on today. Um, And he asked me for our website, and he asked me if we podcast, and I told him we do, and that he would watch the podcast. So, hello, Shelby, if you're watching. Um, And I remember walking off the plane... And this thought kept resonating, like just kind of reverberating inside of me. I could not shake this thought. I thought to myself, I've been on this massive piece of metal that weighs tons and tons and tons. And we've been like soaring through the sky at insane speeds, thousands and thousands of feet in the air. None of that is rational. It all defies like basic physics, right? And yet I've I've been sitting comfortably the entire time, not worried at all. And we took off from L.A., and an hour later we were landed safely in San Jose, and yet I had been on this insane trip, like thousands of feet in the air. I flew, you guys, I flew, (laughs) which we all take for granted. And I felt like God was saying to me, You boarded this plane as a man completely undone, just broken and alone. And I ordained, divinely ordained, this little conversation between you and this guy Shelby. And if you would give me the reins to your life, complete control, supremacy, if you would do that, just like sitting safely on this plane without worry, if you would let me lead and guide your life, I will hold it together. I will hold it together. No matter what you are going through, and I don't know all of your stories, no matter what pain or or frustration or shame or guilt, some of you are dealing with loss or potential loss. Cancer has entered the story. Some other sickness has entered the story. The death or loss of a loved one, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a job, the loss of a home, brokenness in the home. Insecurities deep down that no one knows about. Fears that you are not going to measure up. That you will not meet expectations. Pressures that you are a certain age. And at this age you should have the spouse and the house and the kids and the dogs. And you have none of those things. And that pressure, while it's funny to others, seems to be choking the joy and the life right out of you. Depression, anxiety. Whatever it might be, whatever the rulers and authorities, the thrones that try to lord it over you with their lies that you are not worth it, whatever it is, if you would turn course and run hard into Jesus and let him be the center, let him have supremacy, let Jesus be first, then he will hold it together. He will hold it together. I do not promise many things. I will promise you that. Give it to Jesus and he will hold you. He will hold it. He will hold your life together. As much hurt and pain as there is, as many tears as you shed, give it to Jesus and he will hold it together and he will never fail. Ever. So let him have supremacy in your life. Because he might show up in a song, in scripture, in a conversation on a plane, or on your drive home. But he will show up. And he will hold you together. Let me pray for you. And then we're going to sing. And worship before we go. Jesus, we trust in you and we believe in you. Um, probably sometimes more with our words than with our actual hearts and bodies and minds. But God, we want that to change. We want you to be first, not just in our singing, not just on Sundays, we want you to be first. We want you to have supremacy in and through our lives, over our lives, over every situation, everything we think and say and do. We want you to be first because we trust you to hold it together when life is falling apart. So would you come and take us, remake us, transform and change us? Make us new. Take our broken pieces, restore and rescue and mend those broken things and hold us together in your grace and your love. Reign supreme in our lives and in our world. We love you, God. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, we love you and we trust you. In your name we pray, amen.